This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Now we're going to talk about theatre, specifically in independent Melbourne theatre, um, and a play called Fierce, which is kicking off next week at Theatre Works uh, and running through until the 8th of April. I say kicking off, I've said that several times this morning. <laughs> Initially it was deliberate and now it's just kind of stuck in my brain. Um, the reason I, I think the word is stuck in my brain is because Fierce is a play about a woman playing football in the men's league and uh, is written by playwright Jane E. Thompson, who joins us in the studio now. Jane, good morning. Good morning. So is this what your own personal take on, I don't know, um, Billie Jean King versus Bobby (laughs) Riggs and the Battle of the Sexes or? Um, Not quite. He was a lot older at the time. He was like 55 or something. So these guys are her age. So it's a little bit fiction because that's not a thing that generally happens in sport with a lot of contact and power and speed and and what have you, but I just thought it's theatre and I just thought I could make it up and make it work. (laughs) And so the play itself, the notion then of pitching uh, a woman against men, you wrote this before the AFL Women's League was a kind of a solid factual thing, I understand. Yeah, I wrote it in 2016, um, but I knew it was coming. It had been announced that they were going to you know, have the inaugural season in 2017. Um, So I knew it was coming and I had a few people ask me why I wasn't writing a play about the Women's League. Um, And a part of me wanted, I guess, a a quite explosive premise, something that story and, and, and the scenes could then flow from. So literally pitting a woman against the men seemed to be a more urgent, vibrant, yeah, premise than... Um, and also because it's, it's fiction, I can make it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I know you, it's also written partially as a response to um, Brendan Cowell's play, The yep. Sublime, which I saw in at the MTC in 2014 and found enormously problematic. Yes. In same. part because it's about it's, it's a play about sexual assault and football mm. in which the, the, the woman who is assaulted is literally made invisible in the play. She has no yes. voice. She does not exist as a character on stage. She's just talked about. And I was... I was I kind of, that yes. maddened me enormously. And there were other issues I had with the play as yeah. well. So, but, so you kind of saw that presumably and also responded with anger. Yeah. And- yeah, and I was going to write, I mean, there was a lot of criticism around that time and people responded critically. Um, and I was going to write something myself and then someone said, you're a playwright? And I was like, yes, so maybe write something creative. Um, and I didn't want to write a play necessarily about the whole female fan, like the same themes that he had. Um, I know Patricia Cornelius has written something. I don't know if that was in response or not. I have no idea. But um, I wanted to sort of change the, I guess, just the narrative a bit and sort of I didn't want the woman to be a victim in any way, even though she, I mean, she doesn't have an easy time on stage in this play. But, um, yeah, I had I had a lot of problems with that play and so I wanted to respond creatively to it. Yeah. yeah. I saw Patricia's play uh, in oh, Adelaide a couple yes, of weeks Adelaide. ago. Uh, so, uh, I, and I know from having spoken to Patricia about it, 
her, she was like, I don't want to write a play about the blokes. I want mm. this to be from uh, about the f- uh, female characters, about their their sexual yes. agency their, and the fact that we police women's desire, yes. for example. Oh, so, yes, so yeah. important to write about that. Yeah. I wish I'd seen it. I hope it comes here. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if it does, and I'm sure the script will be available soon through Currency yes. or someone <laughs> like that. But So to come back to your own play, uh, one of the challenges of writing for independent theatre, I would imagine, is you can't have an entire football team on stage. No, and I really wanted to. (laughs) I I wrote a scene like that. So I did my Masters at VCA in 2016 and I wrote it as a part of that. Um, And, of course, when you've got sort of students around, you can grab lots of people. But, yeah, putting on an independent show is not quite the same. Um, Yeah, I really wanted, like, seriously, like 17 other guys to just come on and just be there, like, but that's unfortunately not possible. Um, maybe when we remount it. Um, yeah, so I wrote it, yeah, during my time at VCA, so there was quite a lot of support with Ramonda Cortesi and um, Dramaturgy, so that was really great, yeah. And why call it fierce? Oh, God, so funny. I'm seeing that word everywhere now, and I don't know if it's now or just because I'm noticing it. Um, but originally it was because... I was seeing that word come up um, in regards to women, well, and men, and but it had a di- at one point it had a different meaning, I think. So, like the whole Urban Dictionary meaning of fierce for women is like, I don't know, like hot models on a catwalk, like they look fierce. Whereas when men are fierce, it's quite different. You it's know, it's threatening. It's, it's threatening. It's about strength. It's about the idea of maybe violence um, and then the, the, yeah, the definition for women was quite different. It was about looking hot. So. And one of the, the an additional definition which perhaps I'm most familiar with kind of in the queer world is that notion of, the, of drag queen, oh, you're fierce girlfriend, yeah. that kind of the, the in-your-face kind, yes. um, kind of uh, refusal to be put down yes. kind of take on fierce as yes, well. Yes, which is a good one. I like that. <laughs> Yeah. So the notion of a woman who is strong enough to pit herself against men kind of on their own terms is obviously something that is going to be interesting to unpack and, 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 and explore because men being the fragile little creatures that they are, <laughs> they would find that enormously intimidating. Yeah, I think, and we do, like, we do unpack that a bit, The I guess the, the culture's response to her playing and what happens and how... I mean, it's not quite chaff bags, but it's that idea that it does anger people, I think, in general, because there's a point where I think women can go too far. It's like you can kind of let women have a certain amount of power, but then the culture starts going, oh, hang on, don't quite like this. What's going on? Starts to push back. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So how do you then explore that from a dramatic perspective? Because you presumably your female protagonist is kind of front and centre of the play, but nonetheless there are male characters around her who are responding to her and reflecting different kind of social conditionings and perspectives. So talk to us about how you've explored that within the play itself. I feel like um, there are scenes, it's kind of like a series of scenes and there are sort of narratives that form and then there are other scenes that sort of stand alone. Um, which is like comments. So, you know, there's a scene with her and the journalist. There's a scene with her um, receiving some sort of, I guess, troll male stuff. So, like, you know, really abusive 
text. Um, there's her at the Brownlow um, in the women's toilets. Um, there's her dealing with her coach. There's her dealing with her father. And so it's it's these series of scenes that kind of play out that then her story is able to unfold. So she's always, she's pretty much nearly always on stage and it's other people who come in and sort of either affect her or she affects other people. But, yeah, I guess that's the best way to explain it is that the scenes play out and they are, I don't want to say it's filmic, but it kind of has that vibe about it. It sounds like it would then, in writing this, there would be a challenge to not make it too choppy and episodic. But yes. But to, to construct a narrative while at the same time allowing those scenes to play out to give us the different perspectives mm. of this character and her life. Yeah, so some characters are reoccurring and come back, like her coach and her father and, like, there's a um, one of the players' wives um, and some of the players. But then there are other, yeah, there are other characters who are just in it literally for a scene or half a scene. Yeah. Now, we keep calling the, uh, the character her. I think uh, her oh, name yeah. is Susie. Susie Flack. Susie is the name. Flack, yeah. yeah. Uh, I like Flack as a surname, <laughs> partially because she's obviously going to cop a lot of it. Yeah, I know. I don't know if I deliberately did that or not. <laughs> Subconsciously, remember. perhaps? Or? Yeah, ma- maybe, actually, yeah. Yes. Talk to us about the, the cast that have been pulled together for the, sh- for the show. Um, they're amazing. <laughs> um, so Ellen Marning is playing Susie Flack and we have Sid Brisbane who's playing her father and the coach, um, which was actually a decision when Sid came on board. Initially they were, I think we were looking at having two different actors, but um, Sid just really seemed to work and we knew he could do it. Um, and he's doing an amazing job. And which then also throws up an interesting kind of subtext around the, the coach as father figure yeah. in, in someone's life as well. <laughs> it does. So, yeah. and, it, it, and the father figure is, is in, he is in the sense her original coach from when she was really quite young and sort of put her on the road, I think, to this really one-eyed, really hyper-focused training regime and all that kind of stuff. So I think it was quite intense in her childhood that's how I imagine him anyway. <laughs> now, speaking of one-eyed, you're a footy fan yourself, aren't you? You are a, a barracker. I am. I am. I, su- well, I support Hawthorne. I used to be a member for a little while back in about like 99, 2000. And then I fell out of love with the game for a bit because um, I started doing more theatre and no one <laughs> in the group that I was working with liked football or sport of any kind. Um they actively were like, we hate sport because it gets all the money and and the arts don't get enough cash. So um, they, so I just kind of let it go. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, football, whatever. Um, and then the sort of 2003, 2004 thing happened with like a lot of the stories coming out about sexu- around sexual assault um, in rugby and AFL. And that's when I was really like, whoa, okay, yeah, I don't, this is really conflicting. I don't know how I can support the game when you hear stories like this. But I really love the game. Um, some of the, I guess, sociopolitics around it, I'm not such a fan of sometimes. But the game itself, I think um, that's, I'm a fan of that. So, I, I, Look, I can relate. Growing up as a queer kid in the country being beaten up on a regular basis yeah. by the high school football players. Uh, yes. Uh, I loathed football. And then as an adult, I actually went, oh, if I... Separate the game itself yeah. from the people who play it. The game itself is exhilarating yes. and fast. Which is so strange, though, because you think, how can you do that? But it's, 
you kind of can, which is a bit weird. I ended up following it because, again, I and I've called it a kind of Stockholm syndrome because I, in high school when I was kind of a bit bullied by some of the, yeah, the jocks and I then found myself looking at it to, I don't know, maybe try and understand it, to try and then have something to have knowledge about the game so I could be like, well, I know this. I don't know. I, didn't, I don't know how I thought it was going to help me, but it was very strange that that's how I ended up looking at the game. <laughs> but, yeah, anyway. And do you think in writing Fierce that in some ways writing Fierce is your attempt to grapple with and reconcile some of those conflicting feelings within yourself about the game yeah. and perhaps then also offer an entry point for other people to explore their own feelings about football as well? Yeah. I think I definitely... I think this needed to be written because, I like, I went to see The Sublime in 2014 because I was like the thing kind of exploded and everybody was like, oh, and I'm um, not happy about it. And, um, yeah, I basically, I was like, well, I love theatre and I love football. I have to see this play. And so I saw it and then I was like, hmm, I love theatre and I love football. I probably need to write my own. So I think, yeah, that well, was definitely the reason. <laughs> I'm glad you have written Fierce because it, uh, it, it sounds like it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch. One of the challenges, I imagine, though, we've already talked about the fact that you can't get an entire football team. Well, you could fit an entire football yeah, team on stage could. at Theatre Works. Theatre Works. But <laughs> you kind of, like, you can't have them. But then also trying to – you can't necessarily replicate the, the physical kind yeah. of aspect of footy as well. So you've got to kind of – allow the text and the performances and so on to help the audience imagine the game is just happening off stage yeah. somewhere and what we're seeing is the interludes in between. Yeah, I think the, and what, another play that really influenced me was Simon Stevens' Birdland and the fact that, and I know that was a deliberate choice, but he's like a musician, Paul, the main character, and he plays in this really famous band and all the rest of it and we never see him sing or play any music. Um and I thought to myself, I don't need to write a play about football and have actual footy on stage. I can kind of still create something that is believable but that we might see really small snippets of but not the actual game because it's in a theatre <laughs> and they don't want us to break lights and stuff. So The play is called Fierce. Uh, written by my guest Jane E. Thompson. It's on at Theatre Works in St Kilda from next week, uh, Wednesday the 28th of March through to Sunday the 8th of April. The opening, so Wednesday the 28th is a preview, so cheaper tickets yep. if you want to get along that particular night. If you're a bit strapped for cash, that's the night to get along. Uh, the opening night is Thursday the 29th of March and then uh, the season itself runs through until Sunday the 8th of April, Tuesdays to Fridays at 8pm, Sundays at 5pm. Uh details. Uh, Theatre Works at 14 Ackland Street, St Kilda. Uh, you can book by going to theatreworks.org.au or calling 9534 Let's get along and see Jane E. Thompson's play Fierce at Theatre Works. We're going to talk about visual art now. I'm joined in the studio by artist Bindi Cole-Chocker and uh, Miles Russell-Cook, who's a curator of Indigenous art at the National Gallery of Victoria. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. So, Bindi, it's been a couple of years since uh, yeah. we caught up on the show and, uh, Miles, I think this is the first time, isn't it? So, mm. yeah, every now and again I just lose track of how many staff there are at the <laughs> NGV. So. so, you've joined us to talk about two exhibitions, uh, Colony, Australia, 
Australia 1770 to 1861 and kind of the, the companion exhibition to that colony frontier wars. So one looking literally at the colonial art and the colonisation of Australia uh, and the other looking at how that colonisation process impacted on uh, Australia's Indigenous peoples. So uh, let's begin just, uh, Miles, uh, given that you've curated Colony Frontier Wars and co-curated Colony Australia 1771 to 1860 along with a, a team of other curators. Where did the, 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 the seed or the kernel for these kind of paired exhibitions begin? Well, Colony Australia 1770 to 1861, um, predominantly it looks at the emergence of European art in Australia. And that's the sort of show, a show that looks at colonial art like that, is the sort of show that a gallery really only does every 25, 30 years. Um, the last time a show like this was done, of this scale, and not still not quite that big, was 1988. Um so it's been a really long time since anyone's tried to do a show that explores and celebrates colonial art. And in that time, I think it became really clear that you cannot tell that story of settlement in Australia without acknowledging and that there's another story and that history is far more complicated than, you know, a white history and a black history and that we need to make space for contemporary Aboriginal people to reflect on their experience um, and on the legacy and inherited trauma that came that came with colonisation. It's interesting that you use the word celebrate uh, uh, when talking about uh, the that notion of celebrating colonial art, because celebration mm. of of trauma and dispossession is a is these days is a is a, a challenging thing to think about. Bindi, what was your um, entry point for this exhibition? You were approached by the curatorial team. Okay, so. Uh, I have one work showing in this exhibition. It's a really large work. It's about four metres high, I think, and it's part of the NGV's collection. So they purchased it a few years ago. And uh, it, I guess it speaks to the impact of Christian colonial missions on uh, Aboriginal communities, particularly down here in the southeast of Australia. And so it's called A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. It's a giant... Uh, cross and it it has written on the cross uh, uh, sometimes I'm ashamed to tell you that I love Jesus not because I'm ashamed of Jesus but because I'm ashamed of the evil things people have done in his name and I made that at a time when I was going through a Christian conversion experience in later life that was super uncomfortable and, and still is uncomfortable in many ways and I was having this kind of experience with God and reading about God and, and then I was trying to reconcile that with the things that I'd um, learnt about and heard about and the attitude that I even had myself towards Christianity and particularly the colonial missions and I was trying to work all of that out and how I could make that fit because I had this Indigenous identity and now I had this Christian identity and it created this tension and it still does and so I was trying to express that I suppose and so it fits nicely into this show because uh, it's it's about the, the conversation between uh, colonial times and um, Aboriginal community. So really your work encapsulates the the, the tension between uh, the two worlds, the, the tension between the two exhibitions and can form kind of, you've embodied the fault lines essentially, kind of uh, between those worlds. Yeah, I, I, I guess so. I guess it's probably quite a good uh, entry point into the shows in some ways because it does encapsulate the tension that mm. they're trying to talk about by bringing the two shows together. Well, and it's a, like the quintessential experience for Aboriginal people in the southeast is to be descended from both sides of that colonial encounter. Um, so, I mean, I mean, I have 
Aboriginal heritage from Western Victoria, but obviously I'm white and I'm speaking English, so clearly I also have other heritages. And I think that this show, it really allows people an opportunity and, like, I, I will pick pick up that point on the word celebrate again because I think you can celebrate aspects of that, um, you know, the exploration of a wondrous land and scientific discovery. And there are some interesting and exciting things to celebrate in that settler history, but we have to acknowledge that, you know, settlement for one um, one group of people was invasion for another group of people and um, what that means for us. And like I said, you know, I'm descended from people who had massacres committed against them and from people who committed massacres. So hopefully, mm. I, think, I think your work, Bindi, speaks like perfectly to that, I guess, um, hybrid identity and that kind of liminal space. Yeah, that's good. And even... even uh Discovering this tension in me caused me to then do some research on the Christian colonial missions. And you can actually read journals that were written by the missionaries at the time. And and the ideas that I had around these missions were not entirely correct either. So it forced me to confront things that were difficult to go, yes, um, in ways missions were responsible for the decimation of language and culture, but there were also missions that were absolute safe havens for Aboriginal people. That's why they were established. Mm. Uh, And in fact, there's evidence of missionaries translating the Bible into Victorian languages. It's the first ever recorded history uh, evidence of uh, language being translated. And and so that speaks against this idea of decimation of language and culture. So, of course, again, yeah. it's it's mixed. It's yeah. messy. It's, it's more not both than, either good yeah. or evil. It's very messy. Which would present the curatorial team with an enormous challenge to do justice, to, to try and unpick this kind of incredibly complex conversation, to, to navigate a pathway through it that does full justice to... Uh, to uh, discovery and celebration, but also to acknowledge trauma and to even just to to acknowledge and recognise the diversity of over 200 language groups yeah. in Australia at the point uh, prior to settlement, for example. Definitely. Um, but I don't actually think it was a huge challenge because really all... Like, in order to decolonise history and to decolonise the way that the institution, you know, our methodology in telling these stories, it just means making space for Aboriginal people to tell their history their way. It's not about, it's giving up power and it's making space. And so the catalogue, the book, which is amazing, is filled with artist statements. Almost all of the labels on the walls are artist statements. Everything is in the voice of the artist. And it's just about acknowledging that through contemporary art, we are addressing the gaps in our history and we are um, making sense of the legacy of that history. And really, I think as an institution and uh, certainly as, as a curator, that was just about giving up the power and saying, well, I'm not going to try and tell your history for you, but I will provide an op- a place for you to tell your history. One of the things I'm really enjoying about hearing about this exhibition and also I've just recently been over in Adelaide, for example, and wandering through the, the uh, Art Gallery of South Australia where the, the curation has really kind of mixed things up. And so yeah. that idea of contrasting um, uh, a contemporary work uh, and uh, putting it side by side with, I don't know, uh, an artefact, a painting from the, the 1700s, the 1800s, to, to kind of to encourage the idea of conversation Mm. between past and present, I think is one of the most valuable things that art can do. 
And I think that's where the curators have been really clever in their positioning of works against each other uh, to draw out um, a narrative between works. And I think sometimes that's what we overlook when we walk through a show. We just look at the work and we don't necessarily consider how carefully put together the show is. So where Miles is talking about giving Aboriginal people a voice, that's absolutely true. Where the skill and the knowledge comes in is is in that layout, Mm. I think, and the way everything's put together and the drawing of um, works from the collection and bringing those out and then drawing in other works and just creating this kind of super narrative that is really, really intelligent. Now, in terms of the the exhibition itself, obviously uh, it can't cover everything. Uh, we're talking about kind of well um, thousands of generations of uh, uh, Aboriginal history. We're talking about two hundred and something years of kind of white settlement. I can't do the maths. Kind of nineteen eighty eight plus something. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, but let's talk perhaps about uh, the the section of the exhibition which is looking at. Uh, essentially at the Port Phillip district uh, and some of the works that are in there. Looking at the website, if people want to jump onto ngv.vic.gov.au, you can, there are some of the artworks that are up there. So, for example, early watercolours uh, depicting Melbourne and the growth of Melbourne. Mm. Uh, so talk to us about some of those aspects of the work as well as um, some of the, the other objects in the collection that are also presented. Well, it's, it's quite amazing um, because you get a, really get a sense of... Um, what Melbourne... Well, it's not just Melbourne, it's all of the colonies. Um, and so, it really, it starts with the landing of Cook on the eastern coast of Australia, and then it takes us up to 1861, the year that the NGV was founded. And you get this amazing sort of sense of the... Not just the um, the art emerging, but also just life and culture that was emerging throughout the colonies. Um, and then, you know, one work that I would say of particular interest that you would then see when you go upstairs to Frontier Wars would be um, Annie Marlene Gilson, who is a Wathorong elder um, from Ballarat, painting that she made which depicts the execution of Marboy Hinner and Tanaminaway, the first two Tasmanian Aboriginal outlaws, the first two people who were publicly hanged in Melbourne um, or in Port Phillip. And they a third of the Mel- of Melbourne's population turned out to watch these two men hanged. They brought picnics, they made a festival and she has depicted this huge um, painting and it is a reference to the absence of Aboriginal history paintings. So when you walk through Colony Australia 1770 to 1861, you'll notice that there are so few um, history paintings that represent Aboriginal stories um, and there are none by Aboriginal people. And so it's amazing to have this kind of contemporary intervention that addresses those other sides of Melbourne's history. And, you know, it's it's an extraordinary work that we're very lucky to have on loan from the City of Melbourne for the show. Bindi, as well as your work within the exhibition, which you're obviously in, uh, and uh, I think understandably proud to have within the show itself, what are some of the other works in the exhibition that have resonated with you? Um, I particularly like uh, Marie Clark's works. She's got two walls of photographs of um, Aboriginal people. Uh, all the blokes are wearing T-shirts that have scarification on them and all of the women are wearing mourning masks. And you can sit in the middle of these kind of walls of portraits. Um, I really enjoyed that work and I'm in that too. I was part <laughs> of that work. So I, I enjoyed spotting yeah. everybody that I know and uh, but just also that 
that presence is there. Like there's so many particularly Victorian Aboriginal people on those walls mm. and I, I like that at some point in the show you can go and sit in amongst the community in, in some way. Um, and what else did I like? I like Lorraine Connolly Northey's work always. Mm. She has um, a huge uh, representation of a possum skin cloak made out of um, scrap, scrap metals and found objects, I think, and I just always love her contemporary take on traditional Aboriginal culture and it has a, a, it, it deserves a place in a show like this because it's such a strong voice. And then contrasting that, there's also, there's silverware, there's portraits, there's paintings, there's landscapes uh, and uh, uh, as well as what um, kind of Aboriginal shields that would have been collected from an ethnographic point of view. Well, the first um, the first space in Colony Australia, 1770 to 1861, is just a bank of 35 southeastern shields, which are the most sublime examples of carving with the incised zigzag and herringbone and beautiful white mm. pipe clay and painted surfaces. They are the most beautiful examples of of design and art and they represent the sort of fiction of Terra Nullius. They are the, the first chapter in Australian art and when you walk into the gallery you are met with this active bank of artistic objects that very much fills the space and tells anyone who walks in that this was not an empty land and Europeans did not bring art to this country. <laughs> there was an amazing rich artistic tradition and it's particularly nice because these are all from the southeast mm. so it's actually putting that southeastern history in the gallery as well and putting that as the you know we're in melbourne so the first thing to see to be the history of of art in this place yeah and it's nice to think that i was look, walking along those shields and i was thinking potentially my direct ancestors made some of those shields yes. and all of the markings are amazing like there's no dots there's just all this beautiful line work and it's so um uh, it just epitomises Victorian yeah. Aboriginality. And the sophistication of mm. the of the carving and the design. I mean, these have got to be the best examples of carving in the, in all of Australia. Mm. They are absolutely sublime objects, um, and you know they're all sort of pre pre contact objects. And they're not the only Aboriginal material in Colony Australia, seventeen seventy to eighteen sixty one. There's a number of baskets, um, some by Fanny Cochran Smith, there's, there's some Mariner shell necklaces, there's some beautiful um, clubs from collected from the Melbourne area um, there's an amazing emu feather skirt on loan from yeah. Museum Victoria I so there's that. quite a lot of you know objects made by Aboriginal people as well in that show and then upstairs you've got an, you know, an entire show that's, that's made by Aboriginal people just about yeah so two exhibitions, uh, kind of in conversation with one another and in conversation with uh, Australia's sometimes contested and uh, difficult history colony, Australia 1770 to 1861 and Colony Frontier Wars at NGV Australia at Federation Square. Now on until the 15th of July, open from 10am till 5pm daily. Uh, you can jump online, ngv.vic.gov.au for more details. I've been talking with artist Bindi Cole and one of the curators from uh, the NGV, Miles Russell Cook. Thank you both so much thanks for joining so much. us here at Triple R. Oh, thanks for having us. How much of the music of Carol King do you know? 
probably a lot more than you think you do. She was an enormously prolific composer and singer-songwriter. You might know her album, uh, her solo album, but she wrote for so many other musicians uh, prior to that. Beautiful, the Carol King musical, is currently playing in Melbourne at Her Majesty's Theatre, in which Esther Hannaford plays Carol King. Esther joins us in the studio now. Good morning. Good morning. So, was it daunting at all to have to step into the shoes of somebody like Carol King, who is not only hugely prolific, having, what, written or co-written 118 pop songs, but also kind of in halls of fame and kind of essentially legendary? Um, yes, it was terribly daunting and probably still is a little bit. Um, yeah, it's an honour though. She's, um, yeah, she's a legend. How much of her music did you know personally before you were cast in the show? Uh, I think like you just said, a lot more than I thought I did. Um, I guess I grew up um, with with an AM radio in the car and that was a lot of the music we listened to. So, um, yeah, and tapestry in the household. So, yeah. So I got to go and see the show on, on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so I was sitting there going, oh, yeah, okay, Carol King, beautiful, yeah, kind of, I know that album and kind of some of those songs. And then things like um, the locomotion uh, start being performed and I was like, oh, my God. I, I kind of mainly know the Kylie Minogue kind of cover of that rather than kind of the, the original version of it. But the fact that she was so creative and so prolific um, and demonstrated that songwriting could be a career yeah, and from such an early age, I guess, yeah, she, she wrote a number one hit at 17, her first number one hit. And she said she was at school and she said a lot of the songs were quite simple. So she was like, well, they're that simple and, I, you know, I feel like I could do that and just had the confidence to get out there and go and beat down the doors and do it. Now, being cast in the musical, I'm sure you sat down and listened to a lot of her music as, uh, as part of the research process. What else did you do to, to kind of get into character to play Carol King? Uh, well, she's got this great autobiography. Um, there's documentaries, um, lots of YouTube clips, things like that. Um, so it was kind of gathering an essence and a spirit. It was never that you were, well, that I was meant to be impersonating her. It was to kind of embody a spirit and an energy, a carolism, they call it. And um, yeah, hopefully I've done that. Well, having not seen a lot of YouTube clips, I can't tell you whether you have actually caught her spirit or not but I can say it's a fantastic performance Uh, and the show itself is a really really strong kind of work as a piece of musical theatre it's a jukebox musical Mm -hmm. which is not a form of musical theatre that I'm enormously fond of so I must admit to going in with some trepidation because partially because I've seen some bad jukebox musicals and I've seen some lazy ones whereas this one there's real it feels like there's real heart to the show yeah, and there's a there's a really lovely arc to the story. I mean, the the sort of love story between Cynthia and Carol to me is the kind of the the most beautiful thing about the show, and that two women kind of lead the show through. I mean, that's really special to me. Talk to us about kind of the pre- other preparation you would have had to do because it's not just about learning the songs and learning the roles and researching the character so that you can kind of create something of her, her essence. But you're playing the piano a lot in this show as well. <laughs> Were there serious piano lessons going on as well? Yeah, serious, serious piano lessons. I mean, I could play, and a lot of the stuff I play is just by ear, so, you know, my chords are just bizarre chords, so I had to go and learn, you know, have lessons like maybe three times a week and I was doing about six hours practice a day in the maybe two or three months lead up to the show and so 
it's been a lot of work but really rewarding for me and hopefully it looks right. Well, it certainly looked right because I was watching it going, oh, because when the show started, I'm watching it going, oh, she's not really playing the piano. And then I kept watching and I was like, hold on a minute, no. Can I? Yeah, because you see a lot of people just pretending to play the piano or pl- pretending to play a guitar in a show. Yep. So, uh, but, and I, I, I think I've learned to tell the difference and quite quickly on my kind of my spider senses were tingling essentially and I was going no I think that's real oh that's good yay yes yeah Yeah. so tell us about musical theatre as a whole what is it about musical theatre that you kind of love and enjoy and and because you've been in quite a few shows uh, people may have seen you in whether it's work for the production company or mm-hmm. King Kong at the Regent a couple of years ago or or in this particular production tell us what's the attraction for you of musical theatre as an art form Oh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I think, well, I love I love stories, of course, um, but I love that music can kind of take people to a different space. And like when I go and see, um, you know, as I like musicals that have a good book, probably the same as you. You know, don't um, necessarily, you know, um, the commercial ones. You know, oh, I'm getting tongue-tied now but uh, musicals to me um, the music is the the most beautiful thing and I think it can kind of take you to a place that say you know words can't necessarily all the time yeah there's something about the emotional response that we have to music which is a big part of it and the way that a well-constructed and a well-written musical can say something in song that as you say is impossible to convey in words and the songs will tell us more about the inner life of a character and the inner depth of a character and and help advance the story simultaneously it's there's a real craft and it's a real challenge to write a good musical oh yeah yeah and I, i i've done a lot of new musicals which is something i really love doing and a lot of work with like the four larks and people that do kind of song cycle pieces and um you know atmospheric you know bizarre interesting music i mean i'm always just up for things that are different and interesting and even king kong i mean that was so different and i know it divided people but for me it was just new and exciting to be a part of something um sort of yeah that's pushing the boundaries with, with what you can do with music and story and yeah putting them both together you said you like doing a lot of new musicals, which means you get to originate a role. What's it like in then coming across into a show like Beautiful, the Carol King musical, where you're not originating the role, mm. where an international director and writer and so forth are coming along and saying, no, no, do it like this? Yeah, this was my first time of ever doing that. So it was a really different challenge for me because I'm probably, you know, a bit naughty or something. I like doing <laughs> what I like to do. Um, so... I knew that from the outset that I was very much going to be, you know, you stand here, you walk here, that sort of thing. So um, it was just a different kind of challenge and a different kind of work, but I really enjoyed doing it to kind of work within those different parameters. So rather than feeling restrictive, it just feels like a new challenge. Yeah, it felt like here's the structure, you work within it, which the rehearsal period was very, very quick. So it was, you know, we kind of had it all blocked and done in two weeks. And so I kind of was like, okay, and then you go back. And then I went back after that and went, okay, well, what can I do within that parameter or that framework you know so it's just kind of different you know king kong we rehearsed for four months and this one was two weeks so it's just yeah different challenge now 
the other one of the other challenges comparing those two shows, particularly uh, King Kong. You're you're not the star of the show. There's a, a huge <laughs> giant puppet behind you. In this, you are the star of the show. What additional pressure does that place you on you as a performer, knowing that also you want to be generous to your fellow performers and make sure that kind of you're not kind of pulling rank or pulling the spotlight or any of those kind of things from them as well? Is it? it what talk to us about the challenges of being the star. Uh, well, yeah, you, you, I, there's not a night that I don't go out there and know that everyone's paid a lot of money for the tickets and that you want to make sure that you give them the best show that you can and, you know, honour their memories of Carol and what they've come to see. Um, but also, yeah, to lead a company and to be the one at the top going, I don't know, trying to be positive and, um, yeah, I don't think I'm a pull rank kind of girl. <laughs> um, you know, I like to, yeah, I think I'm exactly the same as everyone else, which I am. Um yeah, it, there's definitely a pressure that comes with it and that you feel it. And even if you think you don't feel it, maybe after a while you start to go, oh, I'm, yeah, it's always it's always there. But, um, you know, it's an honour. So, yeah. lucky. And would also then help to have people like Mike McLeish in the cast who <laughs> was the star of Keating, for example. So, yes. would know intimately the, the kind of pressure you're under, uh, but is also just a genuinely nice bloke as well. Oh, he's such a good guy. I get uh, maybe maybe one or two breaks in the show and one of them I get to go and hang out with Michael McLeish in his dressing room for about four minutes and that's, you know, one of the highlights of my show. He's a legend. He's such a good guy. And, yeah, to be able to talk about that stuff from, you know, an older cast member and get advice or just be able to kind of speak about it with someone is good. One of the, the fun things for me about having seen uh, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, is now being able to recommend it to people. Uh, I've had one friend going, oh, mum wants to see a musical, I don't know what to take it to see. And I was like, okay, so it's your, sure, he's my age, his mum's going to be kind of my mum's age or a, little, or a little bit older. I was like, go and see Beautiful, the Carol King musical, because kind of there will be so many songs from the 50s, 60s and 70s that will resonate. Mm -hmm. And it was fascinating to see, um, I'm, I often... I'm in the weird privileged media position of going to opening nights where there's almost a, an expectation that the opening night crowd will be generous and warm and give a standing ovation at the end of the show. It's polite. It's what you do on opening night, unless it's a real title of a show. Uh, but kind of on Sunday, kind of like this packed theatre full of the general public leaping to their feet to, to applaud the show because they're applauding the sense of nostalgia and memory that it evokes as well as the performance, the showmanship, the staging, the lighting. It all comes together so beautifully. It, it really feels like the crowd are being just as generous uh, to, with the energy they're giving back as you guys are on stage yourselves. Oh, yeah, we're so lucky and I feel just in all of us feel that in a great position, you know, to be able to offer that kind of sense of nostalgia. And you can feel it. Like when there's a moment in the show where we start to sing uh, We Used to Love Me Tomorrow and it's Carol on the piano and she's just got the lyrics from Jerry and you hear an audible kind of, oh, you know, when we start the song and, you know, my hairs on my arms still stand up when those sort of things happen. So I, I f you can feel that sense of, you know, it's not just about what's happening on stage. It's people going, oh, I remember when I heard that. And people come up to me after the show and they're, I cried all the way through and I remember when this happened to me at this song and this, you know, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to be a part of. Um, yeah, beautiful, beautiful. I use that word too much. But it, it is, you know, the sense of nostalgia and memories are just gorgeous. Is there going to be an original Australian cast recording? Uh, not that I've heard of, but we get a lot of people asking for it, which is nice. Well, hopefully there will, so people can take their memories of the show home with them. Uh, beautiful, the Carol King musical is 
on at Her Majesty's Theatre in Exhibition Street in the city. Currently taking booking through until Sunday the 24th of June. I don't know if the season is going to be uh, kind of extended or not, but that's the date I'm aware of now. So you've got a few months to get along to see it. You can book through Ticketek, 1300 795 or au. That's to see beautiful The Carol King musical starring Esther Hannaford. Esther, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple Thank R. you so much for having me, Richard. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.